So Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Let's hear God's Word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Amen. That is on. Could you just nudge it up a wee bit, Dorian, please? Thanks. We've been thinking so far today, both in conversation around the tables and through Helen, about encounters with strangers. Uh, inspired, I suppose, by the fact that um, we recognize that encounters with strangers are part of the, 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 the warp and the weft of this place, of this city center crossroads where, where God's placed us. Um, and, and there are unique things about being a community in a city center location. And some of those things are uh, dynamic and different, are exciting. There's opportunities here in the city that are less true of the church, perhaps in more suburban or settled locations. And there are challenges about that too, the whole uh, the dynamic of, of the, the relentlessness of day-to-day, day and night, weekend and week, and so on, a gathered congregation, and so on. There are all sorts of uh, reasons why city center ministry, I'm learning in the five and a half years now that I've been here, that are different from what I was used to before. And over the next few weeks, I'm going to be in Australia. I'm away for three weeks, well, three and a half weeks. I'm going on a course there in Sydney for a week, and then for two weeks, I'm going to be visiting my daughter and son-in-law in in, uh, just outside Brisbane. But it unfortunately covers four weekends, so it means that I will be absent from you for the next um, four Sundays but thinking of you. Ruth is going to be here. Ruth was in Australia last year, and she will still be here. She's got her work and unfortunately can't come with me. But over the next few weeks, um, you're going to be uh, hearing from people who represent some of 
the partnerships that we have here at St. George's Tron. So next Sunday, Jack Quinn, who is one of the um, area coordinators of Workplace Chaplaincy Scotland for the west of Scotland, is going to be preaching at Cafe Church. And he is uh, our former neighbor. Well, we're still neighbors with Adelaide's Place, Adelaide Place Baptist Church up the road, but Jack used to be pastor there. So he knows the city center very well, and he knows this place because he works out of it. He has an office upstairs with Kate Adams, his colleague. And then in uh, two weeks' time, so that will be on the, well, I suppose, yeah, two weeks' time will be the ninth. And uh, on that Sunday, David McAdam, who is uh, who heads up a ministry of Bethany, so Bethany Christian Trust, but it's a, a ministry under the Bethany umbrella called Connect to Community. And many of you know that on a Thursday we have a Bible study group, um, which we do in partnership with Connect to Community and Glasgow City Mission. So David McAdam, who uh, heads up Connect to Community, and he's working with um, uh, offenders, ex-offenders. Uh, he, he seeks to mentor guys in jail if they have an interest in doing that and supporting them when they come out. And so he'll be talking in two weeks' time. And then in three weeks' time, we're going to launch uh, another painting. And uh, on that Sunday, uh, Ian McEwen, who's minister at Buljaffrey Church in Bears Den, uh, and who with his wife will be in the video that goes uh, along with that painting, will be here. But also a guy called Adrian Armstrong from the Scottish Bible Society. Um, because the Scottish Bible Society partner with us in funding that, the art project, the, the Luke's Gospel project that we have. And so I want you to hear, and I won't be here to hear it myself, but I want you to hear how the videos and the ministry of the art project is being used through the Bible Society in other parts of Scotland. Um, and then finally, on the last Sunday, Darren Jackson, who is uh, the head of Glasgow Navigators, so a student-facing ministry, is going to be uh, preaching. So, four different people and four different spokes, if you like, four different dimensions of the ministries that we engage with. Uh, and and uh, we had, just a couple of weeks ago, we were privileged to host a, a commissioning of new street pastors, so we had an evening service on the 12th of August that was dedicated in many ways to the work of street pastoring. And so we have these different dimensions of engagement, and each one of them affords a different opportunity to encounter people. We've heard from Helen already about the opportunities that exist in here. Street pastors are obvious. Uh, ministries of encounter on the streets, that's the whole raison d'etre of encountering people on the streets. Uh, I bumped into a guy on Friday night and had a conversation uh, and discovered that uh, he was pals with a guy called George Irving, who I married in uh, July, who used to come to our wee group on Thursday. So we have encounters all the time with people and connections uh, all over the place. And so the, the art project allows people to be encountered. Many people will come and talk to Ian or will just ask questions, and they'll often start with the pictures that they see around the walls and the reason for the project. Uh, workplace chaplaincy seeks to encounter people who may be people of faith, but in many cases will not be, and Jack knows more about it than I do, but just seeking to pastor folks in the shops, shops and offices and businesses in this area and beyond. Ex-offenders ministry through Connect to Community seeks to engage with and encounter uh, guys who may be at a point in their lives where they're willing to hear and to listen and to reflect on uh, where they've got to and where they might be headed to. 
And so on that basis that we're going to think over the next few weeks about the different opportunities and dimensions of ministry and mission that we have, I want to uh, look at this passage of Philip and the Ethiopian. And to do that recognizing that for many of you sitting here, for whom the stuff that goes on in the middle of the week isn't something you can engage with because you're at work, then just to make us all clear that every one of us, accidentally, intentionally, through ministry, through street engagement, or in your workplace, have the opportunity to be like Philip and to be in the place of encounter. Philip started out, of course, as, quote-unquote, a waiter. <laughs> I started out as a waiter. My first ever job was in the Post House Hotel next to Edinburgh Zoo. It's now a Holiday Inn Express. But I was a breakfast waiter there eh, for many years. That was my first job when I was 16 years old. And there's no experience in our lives. I bet some of you have done a turn either at the... Uh, uh, a turn as either as a waiter or waitress or in a cafe or in a bar or something like that. Some of my best life experience was grounded in that, uh, in that job. Some hysterical moments. Uh, you know, I, re- <laughs> I remember this, this, this gentleman who came down to breakfast once, and I have to say he was a sizable man. He was a fairly large gentleman. Uh, he was Greek as it happened. And uh, he, went, he went across to the breakfast buffet, you know, and that was kind of, this was back in the kind of late 70s, early 80s, you know, when it was, help yourself buffets were just coming on stream. And, and so this guy helped himself to everything that was on the buffet. I mean, massive amount of food. I mean, all the fruit, there were yogurts, there was a full cooked breakfast. It's absolute, like, you haven't seen this much food go in front of one guy. And then he said, waiter, waiter. <laughs> So I brought him his tea or his coffee or something. He said, you have any sweet and low? (laughs) I'm like, "Mm, okay. Anyway, Philip started out as a waiter. He started out because he was one of the seven that were chosen and appointed when the church, the growing church in Jerusalem increasingly was filled with with, uh, Greek and Hebrew uh, people, and, and there were widows in their number. And uh, there was a responsibility on the church to feed and take care of those widows. And so there was a daily distribution of food. And because of that daily, in that daily distribution of food, there were complaints between the two communities, between the Greek and the Hebrew communities, that some were getting more than the others or some were getting neglected. And so uh, Peter decided, as he said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word to wait on tables. Uh, which is why I've never learned how to operate the barista machine in the cafe, because it would not be right for me to get caught up in the cafe. And so they appointed seven men, and they said they had to be seven men full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Stephen is the one who was named first in the list, who very shortly after, as I'm sure you remember, was martyred, uh, because not only did he start his ministry waiting on tables, But he was an evangelist himself and was killed for his uh, testimony, his, his preach about Jesus. 
And then we read that the other uh, a great persecution broke out against the church after Stephen was martyred. And Stephen, uh, and, uh, sorry, Philip and the others, uh, many of them left Jerusalem preaching as they went. And so this Philip, a young man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, uh, went out under the power and influence of God the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning of chapter 8, we read that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. We've just been singing a song about uh, greater things are still to be done in this city. And do not imagine that because you do not consider yourself uh, a, a, a minister or an evangelist in any known or recognized way that God can't use you just as He used Philip, the waiter, the food distributor, to be a proclaimer of the Messiah and to be an agent of the Holy Spirit in signs and wonders. And it was following that really successful ministry in Samaria that the Holy Spirit said, or an angel of the Lord, and it's used in some ways, uh, the term the angel of the Lord is used at the beginning of the story, and that it was the Spirit at the end who took Philip away. And so we're told that Philip was sent to go to this desert road. What a contrast. Here he's been in Samaria in this busy place, in uh, the midst of ministry amongst the Samaritan people, seeing incredible things happen. No doubt some groundwork might have been laid by the women of Samaria and the people who came to faith through her testimony. But Philip had this incredibly dynamic and exciting season. And I imagine his instinct would be to stay and see more and to do more. But God doesn't always take us in the direction that we think seems obvious or inevitable. And so, on the back of this dynamic season in Samaria, the angel of the Lord gave him a very specific instruction and told him to go to the desert road, to go south to the desert road. The road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza uh, initially goes, um, it goes, um, oh, I need to work out which way you're sitting. So, Jerusalem is here, and then you need to go uh, west across towards Hebron and then south to Gaza. And so, on this road, which was likely to be unpopulated, this road that was likely to be hot and barren, this road that was likely to be fruitless, God sends Philip away from crowds and a city and lots of people responding. It can be quite challenging sometimes to leave something that is uh, busy and dynamic and go somewhere that looks like it might be lonely or quiet. And yet that was the place where for this encounter, for this encounter, Philip was told to go. And so he starts out, and on the way, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. 
one man, one small encounter, just one life. And we've uh, reflected, I'm sure, around the tables, and I know that some of you have, on moments of encounter where you just had the opportunity maybe to say something or someone said something to you and they will never know how much it impacted you or how much you impacted them. And yet the reality of the gospel is that Jesus preaching much of the stories that he told and the illustrations and the pictures that he used were small ones. Gabriel, our cook, and I were uh, reflecting with Ian just a few days ago about the parable of the yeast and actually working out how much flour is involved. There's a, a little parable that says a woman took a large amount of flour and mixed, and mixed it with some yeast. And actually, in the Bible, it tells you that it was three measures of flour, and we did all the, the kind of equivalences and calculations of three measures, and how much is that in today's money, so to speak? Well, if you imagine 14 and a half standard bags of flour, okay? So, 14 normal bags of flour, um, that's how much flour this woman took. And if I were doing children's arrests in here, I think I would get 14 and a half bags of flour, and I think I would put them in a rucksack, and I would think I would see if I could get a kid to lift 14 and a half bags of flour, and if they could carry them. And I pretty much reckon I couldn't, never mind them. So how much more effective to be able to hold up a little block of yeast and say, well, you can't, but this can't. <laughs> You can't lift this flower, but this little blob of, blob of yeast can lift this flower. And that was Jesus' point. She took a large amount of flour. She must have been baking for the whole village. And it is the nature of the kingdom that is the small and the ineffectual and the unimportant. It's the ones on the edge, the ones who were not noticed. They were the ones who featured in what Jesus had to teach the upside-down dynamic of the kingdom, the parable of the mustard seed, the Syrophoenician woman who's, uh, who begged for a few crumbs of Jesus' ministry to, to, to heal and deliver her demon-possessed daughter, a little child that Jesus took amongst them, took and had stand amongst them, blind Bartimaeus on the roadside, Zacchaeus in the tree, we thought about them a couple of weeks ago, as the unremarkable focus of Jesus' ministry in Jericho. One Samaritan woman of an uh, unknown and possibly dubious reputation, and yet she was the one who took the gospel. Twelve disciples who no other rabbi was interested in and who had become t uh, fish fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and we know not what else. There's a little verse in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, that says, who dares despise the day of small things? Who dares despise the day of small things? You know, and maybe your day will have a small encounter in it. Well, do not despise the day of small things. Because it's in those small encounters that God can do amazing and incredible things. And so here we meet this man from what we know as Sudan, but referred to as an Ethiopian eunuch. And so this black African, and we reckon, and there's actually, there's a, there's a kind of beautiful realities, a couple of beautiful realities that I've discovered. That's what I love about Scripture. You always find new things. 
beautiful reality in this story. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 says this, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, why had this man been in Jerusalem? Well, we're told why he'd been in Jerusalem. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. And yet here was a man who didn't know his way around Isaiah 53. Here was a man who, as a eunuch, if he was quite literally a eunuch, if he'd been castrated, which was not uncommon in the world at that time for high-ranking officials, because it was to prevent them from being distracted, seduced, led astray. If you're in charge of all the money, you don't want some uh, beautiful woman working her magic over you and, you know, coining it out the treasury. And so there was a, a known custom that may well have been that this man was uh, literally a eunuch, in which case, under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, despite the fact he wanted to worship and know God, despite the fact that this man clearly had a heart to know God, in the eyes of the law, he wasn't fit. In the eyes of the law, he wasn't qualified. In the eyes of the law, he wasn't allowed in. You know, there are lots of people who live with that sense about themselves. People who may be uh, well-off and respectable, people who may be obviously down on their uppers, but lots of people who can think of a million reasons why I'm not allowed in. You know, regularly we get people who will come in here and laugh and joke that the building will fall down if they walk through the door. <laughs> because mostly people carry that sense of, I am not good enough, I am not worthy. For lots of people, they think that a relationship with God means being good enough to please Him and get it right, being good enough to satisfy His exacting requirements of very high-level perfection. And so, I'm a lost cause. There's no hope for me. And so, here we have a man who the law says isn't allowed in. Here we have a man who is an extremely important and influential individual. Here we have a man who must have had a very good reason or a very good argument, a very intense desire to go all the way from Sudan to Jerusalem by chariot and to have been allowed to make a journey that would have taken weeks or months. And so this is no casual. You know, we're, we're so used to traveling. I'm actually not thinking all that much about getting in a plane and going to the other side of the planet later on this week. It would be an unthinkable thought in this world. And we think nothing of distance or travel because it's easy for us. It's familiar. The world has shrunk to the size of a marble. But think of the dedication of this man who had gone to Jerusalem to worship, who could not, it would seem, have become a Jewish proselyte because a proselyte is a convert to Judaism. He couldn't become uh, a Jewish convert if it was known that he was a eunuch. 
And yet he had come as far as he could. He'd sought to get as close to God as he could without actually perhaps entering the courts of the Lord. Now, scholars, academics, commentaries, they, they debate whether this man was, was a convert to Judaism or, or whether uh, he was just a God-fearer. But either way, it doesn't really matter, because even if he was a convert to Judaism, he still wasn't in relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. But what I love about this story is, I was just uh, reading these words in Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. And this is a beautiful prophecy looking forward to a time of liberation and fulfillment. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. What a beautiful prophecy, containing in it those verses that Jesus quoted when He cleansed the temple. Why? To make a way for all God's people to come without having to pass through the money laundering and the extortion of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but making a way for them to come. And so here is this man who in legal terms may not find a welcome, and yet who in prophetic terms fulfilled in Jesus is wanted and welcomed, because that is our gospel. That is the good news. That is what we celebrate and declare, that whatever the barriers might be in heads or hearts, in lives or sins or circumstances, in shame or torrid past, Jesus stretched out His arms to die and to open a way. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you know, a lovely other little parallel, which, forgive me if I'm just slow and stupid, but I've never really lined these two up together before. But you know, this little passage has an awful lot in common with the Emmaus Road. <laughs> you ever thought that? A stranger on a desert road… <laughs> In the Emmaus Road, of course, it was two people who were encountered by a stranger. And yet in that conversation, as they walked and went along the road, there was an opening up of the Scriptures. 
There was an opening up. There was an opening up of the Word of God. In the case of the Ethiopian, it was Isaiah 53. In the case of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, we don't know what it was, except that Jesus went through the Scriptures of the Old Testament, helping them to move from not understanding what the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures had said to it making sense in the person and in light of Jesus. And it led to a moment of realization. And it led to a sacramental act, if you like. The two disciples on the Emmaus Road persuading Jesus to come in with them and in the breaking of bread, which points to the sacrament of communion, in the breaking of bread, Jesus was revealed to them. And somehow on that uh, desert road with Philip and the Ethiopian, there was a moment of realization. Here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, there were some early Christians who were dissatisfied that Luke's account doesn't actually record a moment of repentance and conversion and so on. So you'll find in your footnote, some manuscripts include here, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. However, there is very slim evidence that that was original. That's been added in later on, just to make sure you understand the guy was properly converted, okay? And so, a moment of realization, and then a disappearance. Jesus was no longer there after He broke the bread and Philip was taken from the Ethiopian. And it's not clear whether when the Lord suddenly took Philip away, he just took his leave and went down the other road when they came to the crossroads, or whether somehow miraculously, poof, like that, Philip was no longer there and appeared at Azotus, which is known more commonly as Ashdod, and is on the coast halfway between Tel Aviv and the Gaza Strip. But either way, both of these are moments where Jesus is pushing the knowledge and the realization, helping people to know from His Word that what He said is being and will be and has been fulfilled. A moment of encounter, an opportunity, a question asked. Helen told us earlier on that she simply asked the question, is there anything I can help you with? because that's the question the Lord prompted her to ask, which opened up a conversation which allowed Helen to open up the Scriptures as best she could to that girl trusting that not just what she'd said, but what she gave her away would let that girl continue on her journey. We may never know what happens with that girl. The scandal of this passage, I always think, is that after this brief encounter and however long Philip spent in the chariot with, the, with the, 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 the Ethiopian, Philip was taken away. It wasn't just he decided to go. It says the Lord took him away. It was as if the Lord gave him Isaiah 53 on a scroll, an explanation that this was all about Jesus, and then he let him go on his way back to Ethiopia. Wow, that's radical. It's radical. 
If it was you or me, I'd want to, you know, to follow up, link them in with the church, make sure that they were getting discipled, find a small group, had a mentor perhaps. And God just said, no, you've got God's word and an explanation, off you go. Oh, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So do not despise the encounter because it's only a small thing. Be prepared to be obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Be ready not just to push your agenda or what you want to say, but as Philip did and as Helen did, listen to where the person is already at and what their question is that they're asking. Ask the question which may open up the conversation. And then let the conversation unfold so that you can open up the Scripture and say, well, this is what God says about it. Presume you have a a Bible on your phone or something in your pocket that you can use. We have now quite a lot of resources. I'm pointing there because they're on the bookshelf around the back there, but we have, you know, pet giveaway gospels and we have little tracts and leaflets. Please don't take fistfuls of them and shove them in your bag, but take one or two if you think you might want to have something with you to give to somebody. There's a little booklet back there that says two ways to live that just explains very simply that you can either live for yourself with you on the the, the throne of your life, or you can invite Jesus to be on the throne of your life. And so this man, hearing Isaiah 53, began to understand that the reason why he was now welcome, the reason why he could uh, enjoy the fullness of Isaiah 56, God's invitation to the eunuch to come on in and be part of the family, to be welcome, was because Isaiah 53 had gone before Isaiah 56. Because God in Jesus had done everything to cover over this man's sin and to cover over any brokenness or deficiency, body, mind, or spirit that might otherwise be a barrier between him and God. God had done for him what he has done for you and me. A long time ago, when Ruth and I were first married, we ended up spending a day on the beach in Elat in southern Israel with a guy, John, who was an evangelist down there. And John was a Dutch guy, but the Lord had called him and, uh, to, to, to live and minister in Elat. And, and he was uh, passionate about leading Jewish people to know Jesus as their Savior. But John had the wisdom and the understanding to know that there was absolutely no point in giving them the New Testament because they had no regard or interest in the New Testament So what John did instead was that he obtained multiple copies of Isaiah 53 in a simple booklet, because he said you start with where people are. You start with their own scriptures, and you invite them to consider their own scriptures and ask the self-same question that this Ethiopian eunuch asked. And the question he asked was, who is this in this passage? Who is the writer talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about Jesus so that you too can understand that however broken, however lost, however lacking in purpose you might be, God has a purpose for you 
And God has made a way for you. And God wants you. So I want to uh, invite you just to pray with me. And then we're going to worship, and then Helen's going to just come and uh, pray for us as a church and bless us at the end of our gathering. But let me just pray and invite you in your, uh, invite you just to reflect on the situation where you are. You can't dream up or imagine random encounters that might happen at the bus stop or the subway or wherever. But think your way into your world and where you are. And Father, as we reflect on this passage, as we reflect in a world and in a society which is no longer under the obligation to be churched or Christian as once it was, Lord, we need you all the more to set up and create encounters for us. We pray, Lord, that you'll make us sensitive to your prompting and your voice. We pray that you will open our eyes to the people round about us. We pray that you'll teach us the way of double listening, that we may listen to people whilst we also listen to the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your determination to bring to the knowledge of Jesus all those who, in the mystery of your knowledge of all things, see, have their hearts set and disposed to knowing you and believing in you. Lord, we pray that you will take us and use us, however weak and unqualified we might feel, and pray that you give us the courage to speak of Jesus and to live for Jesus, to point the way to Jesus. So, Lord, we offer ourselves to you for such as these encounters. And we ask, Lord, that we may rejoice in the answer to our prayer as we pray for those we work and live beside, those that are known to us, with whom perhaps we're already having embryonic conversations or moments. Lord, may we live lives that point to the reality of Jesus. May the fragrance of Jesus rise from our lives. And may we, Lord, may we be agents of bringing the good news to this generation, however randomly you appoint such encounters. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.